0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our weekly political roundup with a focus on Trudeau making an unannounced visit to Ukraine this weekend. That and more with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. As Canada's workforce rebounds to pre-pandemic levels, many think the Canadians have as well. But according to new numbers from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, women are not okay. We'll explain. And we got our weekly Washington report from Global's Reggie Cicchini it's all coming up in the bill kelly podcast and it starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml prime minister justin trudeau made an unannounced visit to ukraine this past weekend reopened the canadian embassy and also met with uh, president Zelensky. don kelly has details
1: deputy prime minister Christian freeland and foreign affairs minister melanie joly joined trudeau on the trip and arrived at the embassy with a heavily armed security detail Canadian Ambassador Larissa Galadza joined the three in a flag-raising ceremony. They had to raise the flag at the side of the embassy after the first flagpole turned out to be broken. Trudeau is also scheduled to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky in person for the first time since the Russian invasion began. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press.
0: Well, that meeting, in fact, did take place, uh, just uh, the latest version of that particular story. We'll use that as a start-off point for our weekly look at what's happening in federal politics. And uh, to do that, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Laurie, I hope you had a great weekend. Thanks for being with us today.
2: I did, Bill. Thank you. Ah, I hope you had had a great weekend, too.
0: Uh, Yep, yep, Mother's Day and the whole thing going on yesterday, and it's kind of nice to have a nice pleasant weekend for it here in Southern Ontario for change anyway. The visit, uh, were you surprised by this? Because I, I know in, in previous weeks we've been talking about this, and the consensus around Ottawa seemed to be, when's he going to do this? It finally did happen yesterday. Talk to us about the uh, about the political upside, if there is one, for uh, for the Prime Minister in this particular case.
2: Well, I think there was there starting to be pressure on him, right, to you know, show that he was going to follow the lead, say, for instance, of Nancy Pelosi and get over there. Right. And so obviously it's not an easy thing. There's lots of security considerations. And as we know, we didn't know he was there until he was coming home almost. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a thing that you have to do very carefully. But still, there was a sense that, you know, leaders around the world were sort of showing their support. And Canada has such a close relationship to Ukraine. And it's part of the showing that we're really in this with them. And so I think it was important for him to make that visit.
0: And about the uh, let's talk about the embassy because right? there was some concern about that. They sort of hinted at that last week, didn't they? That that there was uh, probably going to be a move to reopen the Canadian embassy. There, I don't think we knew that the prime minister was actually going to be there to do it and raise the flag, but. Uh talk about the the support that canada's showing and not just militarily with the the hardware they're sending over there but the humanity efforts here to try to rescue the people that are coming out of ukraine these days in refugee situations but the embassy opening is is there's a symbolic aspect to that isn't there
2: oh absolutely right and some embassies didn't close and so for again like for canada to be playing this kind of role and to be showing solidarity and that we're really there to we're, you know, we're in this with Ukraine. I think that was a really important piece. And I think it was important too that the prime minister was there to be part of that reopening. And so it just sort of fits with this, like we're not seeing this as Ukraine uh, dealing with this, with Russia on their own, right? Like we're, and while the prime minister and the ministers were there, there were more announcements made in terms of military aid, more support, more sanctions announced. And so again, I mean, this, this feels like it's so, long into it. It is so long into it. And we've been talking about the measures that Canada and other countries have taken. And we're still in, you know, we're still in this mess and Ukraine is still dealing with what it's dealing with. But I think it's important for, you know, it, it brings a lot of importance and attention to those announcements into those those measures when the prime minister shows up and does it himself.
0: Speaking of attention, uh, was it coincidence that the prime minister chose this weekend and Victory Day uh, when Vladimir Putin was celebrating in, in Russia to kind of take some of the sting out of that and maybe steal a few headlines?
2: Oh, I think that uh, that was probably a consideration. And I think that the, it's, a, it's a big piece of how Vladimir Putin does what he does, right? Like it's all... It's an ego thing for him it is getting those those headlines it's about casting a narrative around you know the legitimacy of what russia is doing and he he, this is all part of of this exercise for him and it's like building a mythology around him as this hero and he's trying to convince people that russia is actually in the right and so of course you know part of of getting at what he's doing not just in terms of ukraine right now, but in a more broad sense, right? Like this is, as many others have pointed out, an attack on democracy writ large. And part of that is about using misinformation, confusing people, using rhetoric to distract from what's really going on. And so I think Trudeau absolutely was trying to get at that in a way that would undermine, you know, what, what uh, Putin was trying to do in terms of messaging.
0: Yeah, the reason, I of course it's going to play well in the Canadian media, but the reason I was asking is I always like to check these things out and say how's the rest of the world uh, responding, or are they even acknowledging? And uh, this this played pretty well in the U.S. media uh, yesterday as well, which I found rather interesting. But as you mentioned, that's because Nancy Pelosi was just there. The uh, First Lady uh, was over there too. Uh, so the, there's obviously, mm-hmm. there's a, I don't know if there's any you know corro- corroboration going on here between all the different countries, but it seems to be a show of strength just around the time that uh, Putin is literally trying to, you know, flex his muscle, of course, with Victory Day, Uh, these world leaders and and most importantly, I guess, North American leaders are over there. So it's a fascinating aspect to that as well. And I I know there has been some criticism about Canada's lack of of support when it comes to military hardware. But uh, as you and I've talked about, we don't have a whole lot. Uh, So I think Zelensky probably realizes that at this stage right now and just figures, look, what you guys are doing is okay. Wish it was more, but, you know, it's probably as good as we can do at the time.
2: That's it. I mean, I think there's definitely an understanding that when it comes to how we get involved in situations like this, our involvement is not going to look like the US's involvement, like it's just not. However, um, I think that puts a lot more emphasis on the importance of Canada, like showing up again, right? Like, I mean, if we're, we're not going to be changing the world when it comes to lending military aid, but we can work with partners to show exactly how committed we are. And so, again, like this, and it, and it's a, it's an odd position, too, because of the situation around not provoking Russia. And so when you, you know, you don't want to take that step of, of you know, going another step with respect to military action because you don't want things to get worse. It puts more emphasis on this, on um, the importance of showing that you're present. And so I don't know what the right word for that is. It's because political sounds wrong. Symbolic sounds wrong. It's really about just being present, being there, showing up
0: hmm Let's uh, switch back to this sh- shore now and talk about what's going on with the conservative leadership. What I found interesting about this is that uh, for the second time, I guess, in less than a week, uh, a former conservative, I mean, small-c conservative leader, has essentially chastised the, uh, the candidates here. Uh, for the leadership and say, play nicely. Uh, It was Preston Manning, of course, the former Reform Party leader, uh, that wrote them a letter, we're told, just before the debate last week. Uh, Peter McKay spoke up this weekend, of course, on the Sunday morning shows and essentially said the same thing, that you guys are not playing nicely in the sandbox and and Canadians are watching. And that's not the kind of government that they want, people like that. Uh, It's a slap on the wrist, to be sure. Are, Are they paying any attention to it?
2: Honestly, I don't think so. (laughs) And I think that it's interesting (laughs) that Peter McKay and Preston Manning are people who worked very hard on a united conservative project that was electorally viable and that made sense to Canadians, right? And so they are speaking to this not just as sort of former carriers of of the banner themselves and people who, who worked on the project. But people who really believe, I think, that there are core conservative principles that can apply broadly and that the conservative party, whatever it's calling itself at the time, is a, a, an alternative to government and should be playing that space. And there's a sense of accountability. I think you can... I, I thought Peter McKay's comments were fascinating around, you know, this a leadership race is supposed to be hard and it's supposed to be a test of your mettle. It's supposed to, you know, give you an opportunity to... to show yourself to the party and to make sure that if somebody challenges you on your ideas and they will, that you're able to handle that, right? Like you're able to really put forward what you believe in, in a way that's convincing to people. And in a way that you don't, you know, cede your principles because somebody pushed you around and because you're able to draw people to the cause, but that's not how this is operating at all, right? Like you've got people just ripping each other apart. And it's, it's clear that there's a sense of, of lack of, of a common project in the people on the stage right like I don't know how this like some people are asking like how will the party put itself back together I don't think it will right like I think whoever emerges as the leader is going to take the party in a certain way and then other people are not going to see themselves as part of that party anymore because there is no unity between some of the people on the stage it's it's clear like there's no sense of okay we're all going to be in the same tent after this which is Saying something significant about party politics in Canada because the Conservatives were always a big tent party, but now it doesn't look like that.
0: Well, I mean, you know, when Andrew Shear won the leadership, uh, seems like a hundred years ago now. The typical scene on that Saturday <laughs> no. afternoon was there was uh, Maxime Bernier and uh, holding up Shear's arm like we're winning, we're all together. How long did that last? A couple of days until Bernier started dissing him, and not, uh, eventually oh, went even for his own party. And but that—that's one element. Well, yeah, the other right, side like, of and, this and, is and... go ahead.
2: No, no, you go ahead. I wanted to hear what you had to say.
0: Oh, what I was going to say was the uh, the interesting thing about Preston Manning and now Peter McKay is is I, I, certainly not planned, but they represent kind of two other factions within the conservative movement. Uh, Preston Manning clearly, uh, you know, was was upset with the Conservative Party, well, the Progressive Conservatives, as they were called back then, and broke off, and of course formed the the Alliance Party and the Reform Party, etc. Uh, McKay's always been considered a conservative to be sure, but a more moderate conservative. So you've got both of the, the almost warring factions within the conservative party basically speaking up and saying, guys, get your act together.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and I completely agree with everything you said and also the regional side. You know, Re- Preston Manning representing the western side of the, of the country, the party, and then a Peter McKay coming at it from my side of the country, from Atlantic Canada. And so if you can have these two people who have played leadership roles and who don't agree on everything, right? There's no question. Say that there's something to be saved here. You know, there's something to be valued around putting together a party that has broad appeal and being able to compromise and being able to work together on things. And yes, you don't see eye and eye on everything, but you're not going to win if you don't, right? Like you're not going to win if you don't kind of put a coalition together here. And so if something can't happen on that front, like it's, It's hard to see how the conservatives, whatever the new conservative party is going to be, how they would be electorally viable unless they grow in a very different way. But what would that look like? You know, if the conservatives, if Pierre Polyev wants to do this without the red Tories, without the moderate conservatives, and he doesn't want to, you know, think about what a more broad conservative movement looks like, well, then who is he going to appeal to? Like, is he going to go join forces with Maxine Bernier? Like, how does this work? Where do the numbers come from?
0: interestingly enough, the one individual that he did seem to single out was uh, Scott a- Aitchison uh, for being calm and deliberate, I think was the phrase that he used uh, during the debate. Well, the others were not. Aitchison probably has a very slim chance of winning this thing. Uh, you know, it just looks like this is a power struggle between Paulyev and maybe, uh, you know, Sheree, but and who knows who could come up the middle, but probably not Aitchison. Uh, but it was the, the tone, which is what impressed me about this, is that it was almost the same message as, as uh, Preston Manning gave them, is that, uh, you know, Canadians are watching. You know, Manning was absolutely right. Yeah, they are taking notes. And, and so is the, uh, you know, the opposition, meaning the governing party right now. And this is going to come back and bite them. Uh, but you're right. I mean, this is not debate. I mean, you know, this this thing has devolved now, where if somebody says something you don't like, you, you insult them. You don't try to debate ideas and concepts here.
2: Yeah. Exactly. And that and that means that when someone's watching it, depending on why you're watching, right? Like if you already know who you're voting for and you're watching to cheer them on, okay, fine. But if you're watching because you're curious about the Conservative Party, because you are thinking about a membership and you're not sure who to vote for, like, what are you going to learn from this? Right? Like, and it's interesting to see the dynamic between the people who participated last week, because I mean, as we know, it wasn't an official debate. Patrick Brown wasn't there. And I think when he shows up, that's going to be good news for sure. But it wasn't like a the kind of consortium hosted debate where everybody gets exactly equal time. Like to me, it is it. Hey, like fair enough, you know. Like it was it was organized by an organization and they did what they did. But it just seemed to me like the way it was actually structured really allowed for this back and forth between Sheree and Polyev and not necessarily not not necessarily as much time to the other people. But it's I think Scott Aitchison is playing to somebody who's watching this who is interested, right? And who is curious and who's not necessarily supporting somebody yet. And while I don't think he's gonna win either, it could up his chances to be significant on the ballot later, right? And so then it gives him a little bit more, you know, if if somebody here ends up forming a government, hsn maybe gets a bit more profile in a government like that or if the person ends up being official opposition he gets more profile there too so i think he's being strategic and he probably actually does believe good grief what kind of you know what kind of show are we putting on here if people tune into this and think what the heck is this
0: absolutely as always laurie thank you so much for this uh, have a great weekend. i uh, look forward to our conversations as we head down the road on this one thanks so much again
2: thank you too bill take care
0: you're
3: listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml
0: we're talking about economic recovery and certainly during the ontario election here uh that's front and center with a lot of the uh, speeches we're hearing from uh, well would-be premiers and politicians of all stripes but is it working the way we want it to and there's some debate going on about that right now especially when it comes to women in the workforce and uh, i had a discussion well i've had numerous discussions about that on the program over the last couple of years really but just a couple of months ago, we were talking with Claudia who who is the senior manager of policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and she explained why that she-covery is so important for women, especially after this pandemic.
2: If there is any positive that comes from it, it will be that we start having a serious conversation about things like long-term child care reform, um, and, and really about moving beyond the platitudes around gender pay, and really start developing those strategies. Because if we don't do it after this crisis, it, it's um, a, a bit demoralizing to think that we we wouldn't be able to get our act together now.
0: And that makes all kinds of sense. But then there are still some who are saying now, well, yeah, we got the child care program. Uh, that's great. So that should check that box. Uh, you know, it's not really legal, is it, to, to have gender... In, uh, uh, payments that are you know less for women than they are for men uh, so well, n- nobody's really doing that well that's all wrong i mean we we really got to dig a little deeper and find out what's going on and there's a piece uh, written by uh, Uh, Well, our next guest who talks about this, uh, women in the workforce are not okay. Job numbers uh, from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce indicate that, yeah, employment may be up, but boy, there's a lot of work yet to be done and a lot of challenges. The author is uh, Leah Nord, who, uh, of course, we know is the Senior Director of Workforce Strategies and Inclusive Growth with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And Leah joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to explain that. Leah, great to have you back on the program. Uh, Very timely piece, by the way. I'm glad you uh, had some time to talk to us about this today.
1: Always a pleasure, Bill. Great to be back. As you said, you know, last week was mental health week, uh, as well as Mother's Day yesterday for many. Yes. uh, And uh, with job numbers coming out on uh, Friday for April, we wanted to to give this uh, some renewed focus again. Thanks.
0: Well, as you mentioned in the piece, Leah, you know, there's almost a self congratulatory consensus around there saying, hey, the, the, the numbers are up. I guess, you know, women are going back into the workforce. You got that daycare program you guys were all asking about. Uh, so we can put the toolbox away. Everything seems to be fine. And and that's so far from reality.
1: Uh, exactly. Right. And I get it. We've discussed this before, right? We're all tired. We want the pandemic to be open. We look over. We look at some of these numbers, right? And we want to move onward and upward. Bill, but it is. It's really important to remind ourselves. I mean, everybody suffered and struggled during this pandemic. Um, You know, there isn't a Canadian that wasn't impacted. At the same time, you know, women were disproportionately so uh, impacted. Think about when we first shut down back in March 2020, all those businesses that were frontline, right? You know, in previous recessions, they're usually the first that shut down or the first back. But in this case, the first that shut down like retail, tourism, food, accommodations, where women dominate, right? Both as business owners and employees, we're sort of first in, but last to reopen and open and shut and open and shut, right? And and we all know the story about, you know, homeschooling, elder care and domestic care here through the crisis. So that's that's the crisis, right? But but Bill, look at us now, right? As, as we head into recovery, uh, if we want to call it that, right? Can you imagine being a frontline worker for the past, you know, two years, you know, with the burnout, Um, you know, a lot of them are women, nurses, PSWs, you know, respiratory therapists, the whole allied health network. And again, as we go back to school, Bill, I mean, I think it's important to remind ourselves that those under five still aren't vaccinated, right? There's really real issues here uh, in the school. And even if nothing goes wrong on a day, you know, you're always juggling and trying to put it into perspective what could uh, go on. And, And again, Bill, you know, The majority of Canadians didn't have the privilege of working from home through this crisis, but for those who did, there's all this discussion now about what hybrid and flexible looks like, and on some levels, well, that might be deemed good for working women and working mothers. We're also concerned about something called the proximity privilege, right, where what happens when you're not at the office, right? What if you're not at the water cooler or those meetings in person? You know, what, what does that do for networking and career progression? So... So there's still, you know, this isn't the end. This is only the beginning, as we like to say, thanks.
0: You explained that in one of our previous conversations, and, and I think it was an eye-opener for an awful lot of people, because the hybrid model, or, you know, maybe even working from home altogether, but let's use the hybrid as, as an example, sounds awfully attractive. Hey, you know, that's mm-hmm. great. I'll cut down on my, my expenses driving in and, you know, from, to and from work. And But if you're not there, uh, you mentioned that a lot of the time that could mean out of sight, out of mind when it comes to promotions for instance raises salary increases things like that sometimes you have to be around there and and you know there are enough barriers and obstacles in the way of women in the workforce already that's actually what sounds like a blessing could in, end up being a curse for an out, a lot of people that might choose that path
1: absolutely and there's other pieces here in child care bill as well i mean you've talked about this i i, I mean in the hybrid and one of them is child care right you you had talked about child care being here and, and tick the box well Quite frankly, we're not there yet, right? Um, they will. They promised, you know, prices will decrease by half by the end of the year, and, and ten dollar daycare by twenty twenty six. But there'll be an issue of access. Um, Bill, we hear a lot from our female entrepreneurs, for example, when it's not traditional hours or guaranteed hours, right? But even in a hybrid model, you know, there used to be a time, especially in our bigger centers, where employers would offer daycare spots near the office for their employees, right? In this hybrid model, what does that look like now? How, how are you, you know, doing day or care? Where are you finding it? Do you need it all the time? So on and so forth. So there's still there's still a lot to be worked out for sure.
0: Numbers don't always tell the story, though, sometimes, Leah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, all the stats you guys do at the Canadian Chamber, I think, indicate that. You can probably pull out a stat, as, as you were telling us in, in the piece that you wrote, that shows that, yeah, you know what? The employment numbers are back up. Unemployment's way down. that We're in really, really good shape here. Uh, but that doesn't tell the whole story. You don't because those numbers don't reflect, for instance, as you say, the number of women who left the workforce. Uh, and let's talk about healthcare because uh, I'm hearing this constantly uh, from from nurses and, and others in healthcare that are saying, "I just can't do this anymore. I, I, you know, it's it's a strain on my family. It's a strain on me. I'm working." Long, long hours of not being properly compensated for, and especially nurses in Ontario have been told they're only going to get a 1% raise by legislation. That's all they're allowed to get. A lot of them are just throwing their hands up and say, forget about it. Uh, uh, What happens to them? These are talented, needed people right now that are just frustrated by the system that's really kind of shoved them under for so long.
1: Absolutely. And this is what, you know, data is important. Please don't get me wrong. We're all about the numbers sure. on one level. But we've also talked about this is only one side of the story, right? So the first thing, for example, Bill, is as we know, there's a massive labor shortage in this country, a labor crisis. It's not even a shortage anymore. So I, I've seen some numbers um, that have indicated, for example, um, Bill, that me- men, Canadians that are men, they work, they're in the workforce at 68% participation. Women are only at 60%, right? So for example, if we were to get women up to the participation of men, there's another 1.3 million workers in Canada. Uh, that that would go a long way to helping us address our, our labor shortages. And again, the numbers are important, Bill, but what's under them? Women have left the workforce. Where did they come back to? Maybe, maybe this is a good news story. Maybe it was, you know, they stepped away from the, the downward shaping K- K-shaped on the, the economic recovery and got, you know, better jobs, high-paying jobs, high sectors. That's what we really advocate for at the Chamber. But we don't know that yet. And then to your point about healthcare workers and a series of frontline workers, right? They're in the workforce. Absolutely, their numbers so indicate, right? But what's below that? What's their mental health? What's the burnout? What's the long-term impact, right? Even around productivity and, and, and the likes of that as well, Bill. So, so we're just asking, you know, the numbers are good indications we have to look at all the numbers but we also have to look at below the numbers as well to be sure
0: well and and, you know i know that governments especially in the early stages of the pandemic kind of paid lip service to some of that stuff leah and you know we talked to well i guess it was a couple of the grocery store changes because grocery stores as you recall even with the lockdowns are still considered to be essential uh and and you know they were putting themselves at risk of course among all other things so there was a health concern but a couple of the chains actually said okay we're going to give you a raise you're going to get a little more money than you usually get paid because of what you're doing but then they they put a time limit on it there was a sunset clause on it so they're not getting it anymore uh and now as you say they're having to work twice as hard now because of what's going on with supply chain shortages and everything all of these stores and they're thinking i i thought we were essential i mean there's there's got to be at some point you know, you want proper compensation, certainly, uh, but some respect for the work that you're doing. And if people don't get that, they only get frustrated more and more. And how do you replace those people when they finally say, I, "I don't want to be in that industry. I don't want to be at that business anymore"?
1: And we're seeing that, Bill. We're seeing the pressure on on the labor market right now, to be sure. And and my, you know, colleague Claudia, you know, addressed it there as well. Mm-hmm. But we've talked about this as well. It's it's opportunity, right? Let's look at what we can do. We are seeing upward pressures on wages absolutely in response to the labor shortages but it's it's other pieces as well bill it's it, it, it's respect first and foremost i would argue right but also these more you know flexible arrangements understanding you know more more you know holistic workplaces we we talk about bringing our our whole selves to work sometimes right and and we've got a long way to go. But but this is the time and we're seeing the movement within the business sector to react to that in order to create, you know, workplaces that, that people want to go to and return to every day. Because it's it's not only a, a, a recruitment issue, it's it's then the retainment then as well, right? You'd rather keep an employee than have to hire a new one. So, So what does that look like? I mean, Bill, at the end of the day, there are business imperatives you know there's there's a minimum wage you know here now in ontario but what people have to appreciate is that that pushes you know trends on all the other wages upwards as well right this inflationary pressure um you know there it, it doesn't operate in a vacuum and i'm not saying that it shouldn't happen i think that we have to take a look at the, the whole picture though as well uh, including that of working women and working mothers
0: I did a lot of reading over the weekend, Leah, uh, uh, because the word that got floated around an awful lot last week was a stagnation, uh, and uh, what the when it, you know vis a vis the economy, uh, and you know that we're slowing down, we're not growing. Everybody thought that okay, we're going to be okay when the pandemic is over and we're, mm-hmm. things will just happen, but they're not. Talk to us about the role that, you know, that, that employment gap that you talked about plays in this stagnation. Uh, that if the people, 900,000 jobs, I mean, right now that need to be filled, uh, if they can't fill them, if there aren't people there to fill them, or people who want to go into those certain areas, uh, it's got to have a negative impact on the economy, because we're not going to be growing.
1: Absolutely. And again, just to reiterate, this labor shortage, it's not like we have it in a a, a specific region in a specific sector, right? We've got other, some sectors are leading the way, but every sector, every region of this country, and every size of business is being affected. And I know there's supply chain issues as well, but but the number one issue emerging for businesses, including small businesses and medium-sized businesses, is this labor shortage, right? If you if we don't address this, that's that's one piece of this huge puzzle. One of the two pieces of of the you know economic growth piece. Businesses are indicating it is their number one barrier to growth. And you're going to see like this is where you're going to see movement, right? Small businesses, medium sized businesses, but even our bigger businesses have a lot of priorities right in the course of a day. But with this labor shortage, this is this is coming up the priority list and and taking a look at at what to do and how to do it, because we're going to need to do it in order to grow to move forward. There's just not any other two ways about it, to be sure.
0: And we need to incentivize. I know that people are going to say, well, that's just a handout. Government shouldn't be in that business. I I get that to a point. But, I mean, there has to be a discussion about getting people back into the workforce and and making it worth their while financially and i know that uh, you know we've heard the other side of that argument saying well really this it's you know, all the advantages with the uh, p- potential employees now because you can just say i don't want to work there anymore i want to work mm-hmm. from home or hey you're going to have to give me more money well that puts pressure on the businesses too i mean and and it, it may be short term a nice idea for them but the long term if productivity is going to be down you have to wonder about the viability of, of working like that the are we having those discussions, uh, for instance, with the chamber and, and government officials all, all over the country right now, so they have an understanding of exactly what's going on and what needs to be done here? I know they, they use buzzwords, like, well, it, we'll just have to increase immigration. That's part of the solution, but yep. it's not the entire solution.
1: No, and we've talked about that, right? I'm using the yeah. analogy of a recipe, right? We have we need each piece of this recipe in order to bake, right, and the, the ultimate recipe or the ultimate You know dishes is economic growth bill and and you know what we're i don't think anybody's looking for handouts i think you know what we're looking for and 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 it started is you know the decreasing of disincentives within the workforce to be sure but there's other pieces here bill too one of those and and maybe we'll focus on it next month i think is the long-term unemployed right it's those Mm -hmm. who that have been unemployed for 27 weeks or longer we've discussed this as well right but but the incentive is the upskilling, the reskilling, the job matching that can that can happen, right? Those sorts of services are are, are necessary and are often government funded. That's where we can come in and, and take a look at this and, and see what needs to be done and, and encourage, you know, provide those incentives for that to happen. There's there's a number of ways to you know incent business as well, right? To help them just just move the dial along a little bit, right? Whether that's, you know, we, you know, a lot of programs help, you know, provide a subsidy to hire a student, for example, right? Well, there's there's a lot of other ways or cohorts of Canadians we could consider that as well it's it's not a total offset it's just it's just to open those doors and expand those possibilities
0: yeah and I know and there have been government programs in the past by the way that will help sub, you know subsidize a business for hiring new people uh, at least for a period of time anyway until they can move up but what about there's the trading aspect of this Leah but at the same time uh, you want to move up the ladder if all, yeah. all possible you know and and that opportunity should always be there for those individuals and and these are not novel ideas here we don't have to reinvent the wheel here we just have to bring back i think some common sense to what we're doing and and what i was looking for especially here in ontario now because we're in the middle of a provincial election gonna be one in quebec shortly as well i'm looking for you know people to come up with some of these policies and some of these ideas to address this and i'm not hearing a whole lot of it right now that's got to be a little frustrating
1: yeah, but it's the nature of the country as well, right? Where everything's yeah. decentralized, and and I, I I would say there is some movement. I mean, I'll give you an example that that the chamber has a council for women's advocacy on International Women's Day, which was March the eighth. We just launched a toolkit for our our members and business writ large, right? That will help them recruit, promote, r- recruit, retain, promote. Uh, women in their workforce and, and put more women on boards. And and so that's part of what we do, right? We make recommendations to the federal government, absolutely, because we're at the national level, our colleagues do it at the provincial level, but we also take responsibility as the business community in and of itself and say, you know, we have a role to play and, and here's some pretty easy tools, right? Low hanging fruit that you could, where you can start, but if you're further along in your journey, here's some other tools and resources you can consider as well. Bill for women, we were quite concerned during the pandemic that 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 middle, it's called core-aged women, you know, sort of 25 to 45, were falling out of the workforce because we well we need everybody in, but we need them in because they build that pipeline right up the C-suite. If they fall out, we we have got nobody to build on and and bring forward. So so we've got to you know not only recruit and retain, but as you say also. Promote and those who are savvy, even the smaller ones, are going to have to start doing that, or, or people are going to start be, being promoted, but, but to another you know, company or organization to be sure
0: people want to see the, the the op-ed piece that you wrote, uh, they can go to chamber.ca, by the way, slash news, working women, uh, and and read it for themselves. Uh, it's very, very timely, as we mentioned off the top here, Leah, to have this discussion. And, and hopefully, uh, this will serve as a catalyst uh, for some forward thinking about this and, uh, and have the appropriate people at the table, as you and I have always talked about. It. Thanks so much for this today. Great talking with you again.
1: Great. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.
0: You too. Take care. Leonore, who is the Senior Director of Workforce Strategies and Inclusive Growth with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, U.S. politics uh, is is front and center with an awful lot of people today. As uh, Sagar Armaghani reports, uh, President Biden is uh, still... In the mode from blasting a U.S. Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade. That ruling, of course, has been in place since the early 1970s that protects abortion rights. Let's hear what uh, is going on in Washington from Sager mcganey then we're going to get a little deeper into it. If this decision holds, it's really quite a radical decision.
3: The president says he's concerned that after nearly 50 years, the high court would decide a woman does not have the right to choose an abortion. If the ruling as written stands, he says it would affect not just abortion, but other things based on the presumption of privacy, like same-sex marriage and contraception access. A whole range of rights are in question. What he calls a fundamental shift in American jurisprudence. He's pushing Congress to pass a bill codifying Roe v. Wade. Sagar Magani, Washington.
0: Well, let's talk about that and the implications. Uh, it's It's gone from the the, the moral issue, certainly, uh, the legal issue, which are very, very important in a discussion like this. Uh, but then there's the political issue. And, and quite frankly, uh, there's a lot more to that that might uh, be seen on the surface. Uh, as we've talked about in the past, this is an election year. The midterm elections are coming up in November. And uh, the Democrats were not looking very good. Uh, is this an issue uh, that they can kind of... Well, use the political expression, get their teeth into and resonate with the American public. Uh, I want to bring uh, Reggie Cicchini into the conversation. Reggie, of course, is the uh, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Reggie, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good morning. Asi- I don't want to get too deeply into the debate about uh, Roe versus Wade. I, that was done already. But, but this leaked document from last week. I don't mean to sound politically perverse about this, but it's probably something the Democrats could really get their teeth into because they, changing the channel here, away from a lot of the criticism Biden's been getting for the last couple of weeks, this really kind of gives them the ball, doesn't it, to go after the Republicans in this decision uh, and, and possibly turn public opinion back in their favor.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Democrats are, are, are kind of using this to an advantage right now, not so much to say, you know, pay attention to this sparkly thing over here, don't pay attention to crises that are impacting the country right now. But there is a general fear that is building within the Democratic Party right now that they're trying to project outwards that, look, the right could potentially be coming after the rights of women, and that could open up a Pandora's box to say that they may be coming after the rights Uh, of other people across this country and they may be coming after rights that other people uh... have an entitlement to under the constitution so you know we heard from democrats over the weekend on the sunday show saying "Look, we're going to try to put this to a vote inside the senate we know that we don't have the votes for it we know that it's going to fail so we're going to make this a ballot box initiative trying to show to the american public we're trying to do everything we can to protect your rights republicans are going to try and take them away this is going to become one of the top line items in the midterm elections now, unexpectedly.
0: I just want to remind our listeners, because you brought up a very important point about this vote in the Senate. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, the expectation is if they do, they're going to lose for sure, probably. Uh, because of the numbers. And I i know some people are going to say, oh, wait a second, I thought the, the Democrats still had a majority in the Senate. Uh, they do. But this is, again, a, another controversial figure. What is it, 60% you have to have? It can't just be 50% plus one to win a, a vote in the Senate. You have to have more than that, don't you?
3: You do have to have more uh, than that. You need to have 60 votes, and Democrats only have 50, and if it's a 50-50 tie, they have the vice president, who is the president of the Senate, who acts as the tie-breaking vote. There may be a couple of Republicans who would be willing to go on the side with the Democrats, Uh, moderate Republicans, ones like Susan Collins uh, from Maine, or Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who have voiced concern over uh, Supreme Court justice nominees, who said that Roe v. Wade was the law of the land, uh, making it seem like they were going to leave it in place if it ever found its way to the desk. But Democrats aren't going to be able to get 60 votes, and this is going to um, spell disaster. It is worth pointing out, an abortions rights bill was passed in the House late last year, uh, where there are far more, uh, Democrats, um, you know, who who were, who were willing to back this. But if it fails in the Senate, this just gives them more fuel, uh, for an election fire to say, look, Democratic base, you may not be willing to come out and vote this November. This may be what gets you off of the couch. This may be what puts you in line, no matter how difficult Republicans have made it for you to vote. They're coming after your rights, and they're hoping that this is going to be a, motiv- a motivator for the Republic- uh, for the Democratic base.
0: And Chuck Schumer, who's, the, of course, the Democratic leader in the, in the Senate, he's quite candid about that, wasn't he? He says, look, you know, we know we don't have the votes, but he wants this on the record. So you can go back and say, Senator so-and-so from such and such a state doesn't support this. And, and that way there's a record of it, because right now there's a little obfuscation going on with some of the senators. I mean, the hardcores, the, the McConnells and everybody, you know where they are. Uh, But he wants to make sure that everybody knows exactly where they stand on this issue, doesn't he?
3: Well, I mean, look, six months out from a midterm election, this will make great uh, TV advertising for the Democrats if they can put the the no votes uh, on screen and have the, the senators saying it themselves that they are standing in the way of uh, the protection for women to be able to make the rights, uh, make decisions for their own bodies. So when, when Chuck Schumer came out yesterday and said, not on, our, not on our watch, but also Republicans are not going to be able to duck this anymore, this is a calculated move. The Democrats know that they're likely going to lose. Blues, but it puts Republicans under the spotlight who for the last week have been ignoring the uh, the context of that leaked document not talking about abortion but talking about leaks themselves and the, the the kind of integrity of the courts and that's because popular opinion in the United States is for unfettered access Uh, to an abortion within the first or early second trimester. This is something that six in 10 Americans go for. So Republicans are on the wrong side of popular opinion here, and the Supreme Court could also find themselves on the other side of popular opinion. Well, that's
0: what i find interesting about the there's always going to be spin on these major issues as you as you guys have been reporting from washington as long as you've been down there uh you know they've got their talking points and the other side has their talking points but you you're right the republicans are talking about this and so is chief justice roberts talking about this but he's talking about the leak and saying, you know, that's terrible and we have to find a – that's not the issue. I mean, he's bearing the lead here, isn't he? It's about overturning Roe versus Wade. But the court doesn't seem to want that to be the topic of discussion, and neither do Republicans. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, this, this is an unparalleled moment for the Supreme Court. Rarely does information from uh, from the court leak out, uh, you know, this far out uh, from a vote. So there is going to be whatever kind of investigation that the court marshal's office goes into to find out who leaked it and what the purpose of, of that leak was for. Uh, but, you know, Republicans are saying, look, this isn't this is in the integrity of the court that is now being called into question. This is a politicization of the court. You know, it's easy to scoff at those comments because the Supreme Court has been highly politicized for decades now. Oftentimes, you get these non, uh, kind of partisan justices who are very tied to, uh, you know, a partisan politic or policy that comes from the president who put them in that place. But still, again, Republicans are simply trying to ignore the conversation on the actual content of this document because it could potentially erode votes. There are Republicans out there in the base that are for abortion, and Republicans at this point aren't going to do anything that could erode any opportunities they have to make gains.
0: What's interesting about this as well is... uh, is the reaction I guess to this and and you mentioned earlier about the concern about uh, you know some of the sh- statements made by Gorsuch and and Kavanaugh who by the way are two Trump appointees to the Supreme Court and I watched those hearings as you did Reggie and you're right and both of them said we're not going to touch this don't worry about that you know and and of course they've gone back on their word right now which really just adds fuel to the fire of of what the Democrats are going to say here is you know because every time people talk about well you put these guys on the court and they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade they're going to go after uh, gay marriage they're going to go after as you may just and and that was always dismissed as oh that's just fear mongering well now you can say look they lied about this they, they may lie about that too and there's really no defense for the Republicans or for those justices actually in this case because it was on the record that they said they weren't going to do this and they basically I, I just turned around and did the exact thing that they weren't supposed to do.
3: Yeah, and, and look, there have, been, there have been kind of calls and rumblings within uh, you know, deep parts of the Democratic Party to say, is there something that we can do to hold these justices accountable for, uh, for potentially going back on their words or for lying during a, a Senate nomination process uh, you know, up to and including uh, you know, potential impeachment? These, these are life positions, uh, life terms, and it's impossible to get rid of a justice uh, without using a, a process like impeachment, but there are other conversations of we have to go back and listen to the words that were used during these nomination hearings about Roe v. Wade, saying that this is settled law or that this is current law that's in place, but they don't explicitly say, I will not come and overturn this, even though these kinds of questions were posed, these are legal scholars who understand the power of of their own language, uh, so you know they're very easily able to dance around, making sure that they don't put themselves in a position of potentially committing perjury. Democrats are obviously going to go and comb over these words, uh, you know, with a fine tooth comb to figure out what they can do. But ultimately, you know, with a decision coming in just the next couple of weeks, if there is. Uh, a broad consensus on this Republican or at least right-leaning court, uh, this is going to be a seismic shift across this country, one that where for the first time the Supreme Court is going to be in a position of taking rights away as opposed to expanding eligibilities and rights for Americans.
0: Uh, it's always fascinating to watch the spin that some people, I, I think it was on Fox News over the weekend, because they were talking about the leak, of course, because that's what Republicans want them to talk about. And they're suggesting it's probably that, that, that new appointee to the, to the bench, you know, that, did it. You know that, that Democrat that Biden finally got onto the court. She wasn't even sitting with the court when this decision was rendered uh, and, and Alito started to write it. But I mean, that's, I guess, to the extent that they'll go to try to shift the blame over to somebody else as opposed to talking about the real issue here.
3: Absolutely. I mean, the, the Republicans uh, for four years now have been you know, doing everything that they can to ensure that there is a conservative majority on the court to ensure that there is, uh, you know, a conservative leaning um, law that exists uh, across this country. And look, even if we look away from the courts, if we go back to uh, to the Senate, if Republicans take control later this year with any kind of majority, it would be very easy. And it has already been threatened that we could see a, a Republican leader get rid of the filibuster, something Democratic Democrats can't do right now, and in doing that, would be able to pass bills by a 50-plus-1 margin. And if they do that, there are conversations from the Senate Majority Leader right now that an abortion ban from coast to coast could be codified into law. So no matter what you know, Republicans want to say Democrats are trying to do, ultimately Republicans are trying to create blanket law across this country, uh, and they are at real risk of being able to do that.
0: I know part of the justification, if I can even use that word, and I think it says in the the, the leaked document from Justice Alito, is that that, he basically said this is not a federal jurisdiction. This this never should have been passed in 1973, so we're going to leave it, as you just mentioned, up to the individual states. But uh, the majority of states right now, Reggie, I guess... The governors, in other words, the governments of those states are Republican, aren't they? So, I mean, they're not necessarily saying, no, you can't have an abortion. We're going to leave it up to them. But the state legislatures probably are going to favor this this decision uh, by this Supreme Court simply because of their Republican uh, philosophy towards something like this.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And well Alito made those comments about the Constitution, it is worth pointing out uh, that several years ago, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was on the left-leaning part uh, of the bench, also made comments saying that the wording within Roe v. Wade may not have been airtight enough or may have been used incorrectly and was fearful about what could happen uh, in in a, in, a, in an era where, where the law may be overturned. Uh, and this is going to thrust it back, you're right, into the hands uh, of uh, a majority Republican-leaning and led states. Uh, 26 of them, when, if this is overturned, uh, are going to find themselves in a position of putting restrictions or full-out bans in place. Within those 26 are 13 states who have trigger laws, meaning as soon as that, uh, that law is overturned, abortion will become illegal no matter what across those states. And a doctor I spoke with yesterday, who is an abortion provider, said that it puts doctors in an impossible situation because they take a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. And the state is going to be putting doctors in a position of denying women uh, abortion access, going against what their Hippocratic oath is. So there are ethical concerns that are going to kind of pop up alongside what these, you know, moral and and values-based concerns are that Republicans have.
0: I noticed uh, we're, we're talking about apportioning blame here and, po- and finger-pointing. And, and and frankly, the Democrats, I guess, Reggie, are doing a little bit of that too. Uh, and uh, the, the target's Mitch McConnell. I mean, they're going all the way back and saying this never would have happened. Uh, if McConnell had allowed, uh, you know, the, uh, a, ju- a, a position on the bench to be filled, of course, uh, you know, he, he had recommended well Merrick Garland, who's now, of course, in in the Biden administration. And McConnell simply said, "No, we're not going to even have hearings on this." And of course, as a result, there was a change of government, and you got another right wing guy on the court as opposed to uh, what would have been a Democratic nominee, Mr. Garland. Uh, and and that that's the numbers game that's always going to be at play here, I guess.
3: Well and I mean look they they refused uh a Merrick Garland appointment or, or even nomination process uh for elevation to the Supreme Court arguing that it was the final year of the Obama administration and therefore uh any justice position should be filled by the next president and then here we are uh with uh with Amy Coney Barrett Position on the Supreme Court when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died towards the end of the Trump administration and Republicans decided to go back on their word. So Republicans will always find a a loophole or a justification for the way that they're trying uh, to act and the way that they ultimately end up getting to act. And they will do what they can uh, to bar Democrats from acting in a similar way. But there are concerns and criticisms being directed towards the Democrats saying it might be time to start playing the tricks that Republicans use if you want to try to get your way, if you want to try to get Law passed if you want to try to protect rights uh, around this country. Uh, But ultimately, you know, the Democrats, they they use the process that they say works for them, you know, in six or seven weeks' time or in six months during the midterms. uh, We'll have to see if those processes ultimately play out in their favor.
0: Well, it's uh, an amazing uh, development, of course, in in what seemed to be kind of a, a, well, heading into summer, everybody seemed to kind of hit a neutral figure, okay, they're going to, you know, take their summers off and everything's going to be fine. And, well, I pick this up again in September. But uh, as they say in the political business, Reggie, this one has legs, doesn't it?
3: this one absolutely does have legs, because look, this has been law in this country for 50 years, meaning that there have been generations that have now gone by in this country with unfettered access to abortion rights, with uh, an ability for a woman to make a decision for her own body. Uh, And if this goes away, if this does shift, if women lose that right, do uh, the rights of gay people get taken away? Do the rights of people looking for IVF treatments get taken away? Uh, Does this start to expand? This is going to become a talking point across the summer. This is going to be a top-line item. Into the election. Uh, and this is something that Democrats are going to say look, if Republicans get their way, watch out America.
0: Uh, watching for your reporting on this on Global National, of course, as this unfolds. Reggie, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Gicchini, of course, uh, Global's reporter down in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show,
3: weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.